Deck Triathlon Show 262. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Inigo San Milan. Inigo is the head coach of World Tour cycling team UAE Team Emirates and the personal coach of Tour de France winner from this year 2020, Tadej Pogacar. He's also a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine where he does clinical and research work in cellular metabolism. And this is not just exercise science, but uh, actually a lot of his work is in uh, things like diabetes, cardiometabolic disease, and cancer. So he really, really knows his cellular metabolism from all uh, different perspectives that you can you can look at it. But importantly, of course, for our discussion, how to apply it in endurance performance. But before we get into the actual interview, I want to remind you of the Scientific Triathlon training camp that we're going to have between the 10th and 17th of April 2021 on Mallorca. You can find all the information on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp. So go there and apply. I won't waste too much time talking about this here, but uh, there is uh, a lot of information on that page. So go and check it out and email me if you have any further questions. One thing that I do want to mention is that we have uh, some extensive COVID-19 refund policies in place. So uh, you can read all about that. But basically, uh, you are pretty safe signing up for the camp. If for some reason it's not possible to travel to Mallorca, uh, you will get your money back. So uh, go and check that out. Also, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. If you listen to this episode as it comes out on Cyber Monday, then you still have today to get 20% off all electrolyte supplements by using the code TTSFRIDAY20 on the website. And if you order for more than 100 US dollars, then you get a free microfiber towel as well. So uh, check that out. And uh, of course, you know the deal. Go and uh, take a free online sweat test to figure out what sort of strength you should have for your electrolytes to match your individual sweat sodium content. And a big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka is running a long holiday sales period all the way through the 1st of December. So actually, by the time you hear this, it's not that long anymore. But you still have uh, one or two days to go. So go and check that out. If there are any items that you can't find on sale, of course, as usual, you can get 20% off of them with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Please be aware that the promo code there can't be combined with uh, items that are on sale. Uh, so for that, you just need to choose which one gives you the bigger discount. If you buy something that is on sale for a bigger discount than the 20% you can get through the TTS code, uh, then uh, please let Roka know that you came from uh, Scientific Triathlon or from that Triathlon show because that helps uh, keep the sponsors happy and keep the show sustainable. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with uh, Dr. Inigo San Milan. Welcome to that Triathlon show, Inigo. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, Mikhail. Very, very, very nice to meet to meet you. You too. Uh, thank you. And uh, let's start by just you giving an introduction of yourself, uh, so that those who may not know who you are can get a better overview of uh, yeah who you are and what you do and so on. 
So yeah, I, uh, my name is Inigo San Milan, and I, I am a, a professor at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado, and also in the Department of Physiology in our campus in Colorado Springs. And I've been for 25 years working with uh, athletes of all kinds of uh, uh, sports and, and levels, uh, mainly elite athletes and, and, and professional sports. And uh, I, 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 I also work in the area of research in cancer and diabetes at the uh, School of Medicine. So I kind of combine both, both works, both jobs right now. <laughs> That's something that I've found impressive in in following you a bit. How how you managed to combine the two or the three actually, like the academic side in both the physio- general physiology, but also the cancer and uh, and general health, but then also the coaching side of things with your work with the uh, with with the UAE uh, cycling team on the world tour and among others have coached uh, Tadej Pogacar who is the Tour de France winner of, of this year. So it's uh, very impressive all the things that you managed to combine. Well, thank you. It was just uh, the the nice thing is that they all have one thing in common, right? Which is uh, metabolism and physiology. So uh, that that's where it's it's much easier. They're not so different, right? Uh, and and I think that um, I'm learning from uh, each of the fields, and and there's applications uh, in each of the fields as well. Yeah, we'll get into the metabolism and the physiology side a bit uh, more in in a little bit. But first, I would like to discuss uh, some training principles. And uh, so, can you discuss what you would consider your main training principles or an overview of how you view endurance training? And maybe if you have some different opinions when it comes to pros versus amateurs, then you can also go into that. Yeah, well, that, thank you for the question. So in my modest opinion, I think it's about uh, trying to address uh, different energy systems. That's kind of how I view it. Uh, so we have the oxidative uh, system, right? That's uh, uh, mainly based on the oxidation of fatty acids for energy purposes. Um, then we have the glycolytic system, which is about the utilization of glucose. And then uh, we have also then the ATP uh, phosphocreatine system. Right, which is some it's 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 energy that is anaerobic doesn't need uh, oxygen and it's a uh, energy stored in the muscles already in the form of ATP. Um, but uh, that's where how I address it. So uh, all the seasons are important. Specifically, the important ones are the oxidative system and the uh, the glycolytic system. The glycolytic system is the one that obviously it's very necessary and important to win a competition. Uh, that's kind of I call that the turbo, if you will, uh, but uh, it needs the oxidative system to function. Um, the oxidative system is mainly it mainly happens in the in the slow twitch muscle fibers, and the uh, glycolytic system mainly happens in the fast twitch muscle fibers. But in the fast twitch muscle fibers, the um, the uh, end product, uh, not a waste product, but the end product of the glycolytic system is always uh, lactate. Is the mandatory product by product or end product, and uh, that lactate needs to be cleared out of the uh, fast twitch muscle fibers, um, and it's cleared by the slow twitch muscle fibers mainly and in, in the mitochondria, and that's where the mitochondria is key to improve that oxidative system as well as to clear lactate. Yeah, I think it's something that uh, over recent years, people are becoming more and more familiar with the fact that lactate is 
not a waste product and uh, not not a negative uh, substance that we have, but actually a, a positive of, of fuel. It's used for fuel, as you say. So, but it's good that uh, to hear it once again, and you explained it very well how it uh, goes uh, is shuttled from the fast twitch fibers to the slow twitch fibers. What how uh, different demands uh, are there on the uh, the glycolytic system for? somebody who is maybe a sprinter or a breakaway specialist if in cycling terms versus a uh, a general classification rider or a climber or or something like that how how much how different demands do they have on on that system i think uh that all demands are important um like like let's say a climber rider or a gc rider has to travel through the competition with a very good uh um uh metabolic efficiency and for that, they need to be very good at oxidizing fats for energy purposes uh, in the mitochondria. And also, uh, they need a very good glycolytic capacity to put out 400 watts, for example, on a climb. Uh, and, and as we mentioned, you know, that, that's going to produce lactate. And, and, and lactate is not, again, the prime of, la- of, of lactate is not lactate itself, is the hydrogen ions associated to lactate. Those are the ones that accumulate and, and elicit an acidosis in the microenvironment of the muscle. Um, and, and, and also the lactate itself, it's a signaling molecule. And uh, when, when, when it accumulates without being oxidized, it's probably not good. That's something that we're seeing very clearly in, in cancer. It's a major driver of carcinogenesis. But uh, anyways, but in, in, when it comes to sports performance, that's something that you don't want to accumulate lactate. You want to use it for energy. And that's what uh, you need to oxidize it in other uh, 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 fibers, in this case, uh, uh, slow twitch muscle fibers, into fuel. So that, that's a system that's very important for the GC guy. For the sprinter, in a way, they also have to travel through the race uh, m- more metabolically efficient, efficient than others. Uh, many times, you know, the guy... Uh, who uh, is the fastest in the sprint might not be the fastest sprinter, but maybe the freshest who arrived to the finish line or the last 200 meter, the freshest, or even the last, uh, the last two kilometers, three kilometers in the race, they're really, really hard, really difficult. So if you arrive there cooked, there's not much you can do. And I've seen this multiple times, someone who can put out seven, 800, 800 watts, 1800 watts, sorry, in a sprint. But uh, in a race, they cannot do more than 1,300 or 1,400 watts. And that's because they, they, they're not uh, very good at, um, they're not metabolically efficient. And they travel through the race uh, producing a lot more lactate. So, but if they arrive fresh, yes, that, that's where they have that, that spring capacity. And that's the, that ATP uh, PC uh, system that is anaerobic. And, 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 and there's a lot of genetics behind it. There's a lot of training as well, but this is what I think that whether you are a GC rider or you're a sprinter in a sport like cycling, you need to have, you need to be complete uh, at, uh, in, in all the energy systems. And do you think that uh, amateur athletes, let's say people focusing on half and full distance triathlons or longer gravel races in cycling or marathon running, that sort of thing, do they also need to focus on? Uh, striving for being complete and really focusing on all the energy systems in the same way? I would say so, uh, except for sprinting, right? I, in my opinion, 
you know, and this is one thing that I, I focus on those those three energy systems, right? Is is that yeah, if you're a soccer, a football player, or a basketball player, or a sprinter, you need you know the sprinting capacity. If you are a marathon runner or a triathlete, you know when are you going to sprint, right? Uh, chances are that you might not even sprint ever, you know. And even yep. if you have to sprint in the last uh, 200 meters in, in the event that you arrive after a marathon to a sprint situation, it's not a full sprint. It's more about being faster because at that time you're so fatigued that it's very difficult to <clears throat> deploy uh, the high sprinting capacity. So, you know, sometimes when I see uh, these type of athletes training the sprinting capacity all the time, at least once or twice a week doing sprints and sprints, sprints, I, I wonder, like, uh, like why, why, right? What, what's the principle behind that? Because they're never going to use that energy system, and it's going to take time away, in specifically from from triathlon, time away from cultivating the other energy systems, which are key, right? And on top of that, it poses an extra uh, physiological stress on the body, um, specifically when it comes to the um, the, the triathlete. Uh, it, it's it's important to to uh, to improve the, the the fat oxidation, but the glycolytic capacity as well. Like when you do a marathon at competition pace, uh, we sometimes think some, many times think that oh, this is fat burning mode, right? Or when you do like uh, the bike part of the of the Ironman, but the reality is that the glycolytic component is huge. So uh, that's why it's very important to to work those. Uh, both energy systems got it so if we discuss a bit around what what it looks like in terms of training and maybe you want to start actually from the testing because i know that you uh, you do uh, a lot of testing lactate testing so so perhaps you can start there and tell us a little bit more about the testing that you do and how that then informs training decisions yeah so i i like to do uh all, you know like complete metabolic testing uh, where I look at, um, you know, try to have a picture of what's the metabolic map of an athlete, what's the muscle fiber recruitment patterns, what's the substrate utilization, what's the lactic cleanse capacity. So I I started changing protocols too. Uh, and about 20 years ago, I started like a longer protocol as opposed to the short protocols, one or three minute intervals, increment, I mean, intervals every, every, uh, every stage. And I, I do like about 10 minutes uh, increments, right, until exhaustion. And I do 10 minutes uh, because I like to observe uh, how different athletes respond and how it can discriminate. So, for example, if you look at lactate and uh, you do like a protocol that is uh, one minute long or even three minutes long, it's very possible uh, that the lactate you're getting from uh, the current step might be a reflection of what happened in the previous step. However, if you do like a 10-minute long protocol, that's where you are sure that the lactate you're getting is from this actual step, right? So this is this is one of the things that, uh, and also discriminates. You know, you see like, let's say with uh, two athletes and, and at minute three, at 300 watts, for example, right? At minute three of that, uh, that stage, uh, both athletes have three millimoles of lactate. So the conclusion might be that they're similar, metabolically speaking. However, you see that one athlete, uh, seven minutes later, that is at, at minute 10, 
is still at three millimoles of lactate, so it's very steady state for that athlete, whereas the other athlete might be already at seven. And that's where you see that there's a huge discrimination between seven millimoles and three millimoles. So this is one of the things that I like to do when, when it comes to the length of the protocol. Then, as I mentioned, I, I look at lactate because it's a very good uh, surrogate for what's the metabolic efficiency of an athlete. If you see higher lactate appearing in blood, it means that uh, there's not enough lactate clearance capacity in the muscles. Uh, the fast twitch muscles produce lactate as a result of a combustion of glycolysis, of glucose, and that lactate preferably is oxidized in the adjacent muscle fibers, uh, which are the uh, type 1 muscle fibers within the mitochondria. So if you have a good mitochondrial capacity and function in the slow twitch muscle fibers, you're going to oxidize that lactate right there within the muscle and it's not going to uh, be exported to the blood as much. So when you see blood appearing, in, I mean lactate appearing in the blood, it, it, it means that you're losing that lactate cleanse capacity. That's, for example, what I mentioned in that earlier in that, 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 that 10-minute interval. If, if by, by minute three, both cyclists have, a, a, you know, or runners, they have three millimoles, okay, that, that's good, but I want to see what happens seven minutes later. And in fact, you see seven minutes later, one of the athletes still at uh, three millimoles. That means that they're oxidizing lactate very well. And the other one is losing the lactate oxidation in the mitochondria and starts building up in the muscle. So there's no other choice than, than sending them to the blood. Um, then uh, I like to see what's the substrate utilization. So nowadays through uh, stoichiometric equations uh, with metabolic CART, we can get to see what's the fat and carbohydrate oxidation. So I started doing this about 15 years ago, and I remember that a lot of people thought it was a crazy idea, <laughs> and, but now this is the common thing to do, looking at fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates, because it, it shows you too, you know, what is the metabolic efficiency of that athlete? Is that athlete oxidizing a lot of fat, therefore is in a very oxidative situation, or is already utilizing a lot of carbohydrates for energy purposes? And, uh, and furthermore, it can help us also to dial in the nutrition. So looking at these observations, for example, about uh, 12 years ago, I started to recommend new nutritional guidelines. So the, 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 the previous nutritional guidelines called for 30 to 50 grams per hour of carbohydrates in longer events over three hours. But looking at all this data, I started to recommend 80 to 100 grams per hour because I, I, I thought that this cannot, you know, uh, athletes, they, they oxidize a lot more than what we've been told for, for decades with this uh, former guideline. So, yeah, that's what I started to use 80 to 100 grams an hour. And, and again, like back then, you know, uh, I was highly criticized by some of the nutrition gurus around the world because it was impossible to do this. And now, you know, many of these same uh, people now they're, they're the, who were criticizing me, they're they're not giving conferences and writing guidelines about using 80 to 100 grams per hour, right? So, uh, but um, yeah, it's something that it's 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 a big deal to uh, to 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 have like a carbohydrate consumption of uh, 100 grams per hour versus 30, and uh, it really it really uh, makes a difference. But again, this is something that we got through uh, looking at fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates uh, during exercise as part of the protocol, which I do this all the time. 
So when it comes to lactate itself, uh, the lactate concentration that you measure is obviously a function of the production and the clearance. And uh, But it's it's not possible to know exactly which is which. You might have uh, an athlete that produces a lot but also clears a lot or an athlete that produces little and clears little. So do you, in some ways, do you go to to all out, basically try to elicit a maximum lactate concentration that you can see? Or do you have any other tricks when it comes to finding out whether an athlete has that strong glycolytic capacity in the first place to to produce uh, lactate yeah that's a great question and uh so for that my 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 colleague mentor and great friend george brooks from the university of Colorado, of, of california berkeley he has done ex- extensive research in lactate and, and and pretty much everything that we know about lactate comes from his uh, research were for over 40 years. Uh, so he's shown that um, uh, well-trained athletes, and then others have shown and you know, confirmed that well-trained athletes, they produce more lactate uh, because their the glycolytic capacity also is, is stronger. And therefore, your glycolytic capacity is, is better. You're going to be producing more lactate. <clears throat> that said, your lactate clearance capacity, your oxidation capacity is much better as well. So sometimes we see or we tend to think, oh, this athlete at, let's say, 300, 350 watts is not producing lactate. That's kind of how times, let's say, I'm sorry, I reverse, like, we see like 350 watts and an athlete has, let's say, three millimoles of lactate or two and a half, right? So we might think that that athlete is not producing lactate, where actually uh, it's probably that he or she is producing tremendous amount of lactate, but it's cleaning out very well. So that's what uh, um, you, you, you th- normally know that when, when you're pedaling at 350, 400 watts, you know, the, the glycolytic capacity is it's enormous. So when you see an athlete whose lactate is not much, uh, that means that uh, that doesn't mean that it doesn't produce lactate. It produces tremendous amount of lactate because, again, glycolysis cannot happen without lactate, and, uh, but it's very good at clearing the lactate. I don't know if that addresses the question. Uh, well, well, the, the one or the part of the question, at least, was whether you actually go to maximum to test their maximum lactate concentration. Like, do you do you test that, or is it not important? Oh, oh, yeah, great question. Yeah, so yes, um, what 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 I've seen is that uh, very, you know, uh, like glycolytic athletes, like for example, rowers. Rowing is a uh, it's an, an incredible sport. Very very difficult. Very hard. And uh, the Olympic distance is, is 2,000 meters. So we're talking about when you work in a boat, right, with eight, um, we're talking, you know, it's about six minutes. So, uh, and, and you move pretty, I mean, you use pretty much every single muscle in the body, right? And, um, and these athletes are characterized by having tremendous glycolytic capacity. And you see maximum lactates of, you know, 15, 17, 20 millimoles. And, and, and that's something that I observe when you talk when you do the same test or a maximal test, I'm sorry, in a, to, to a marathon runner, for example, you're not going to see 17 millimoles, 20 millimoles normally, right? You might see eight millimoles, nine millimoles, 12 millimoles. Uh, and the same thing we can see in, you know, in, in a cyclist as well. Um, so endurance athletes, they tend to have a, a, a lower glycolytic capacity compared to like a rower, for example, or, or a swimmer, like a 100-meter swimmer, for example. But to your question, 
I don't in, in, when it comes specifically to endurance athletes, I don't I don't pay much attention to the maximum lactate, uh, but I also pay attention to that. So what I mean, I don't pay much attention to that lactate because normally that super super high glycolytic capacity, which is yeah, close to like yeah an anaerobic effort, that's something you don't deploy in the competition much. However, uh, it's important. I like to to see what's the maximum lactate capacity of that athlete because. If, if if it's very depressed, the the maximal lactate, it's a sign of fatigue and glycogen depletion. So if an athlete, if you do a test to an athlete, and I always take them to the to the tent, or normally tell tend to take them to the max. If that athlete normally has ten millimoles of lactate, maximal lactate, and today that athlete has four, which is quite common to see, you know that that athlete has a decreased. Uh, has a fatigue and decrease uh, glycogen content. Uh, so it's it's a it's a good way to see this, and therefore also you see that they also have lower maximum heart rate, which is another thing that I like to see because they go together. Uh, maximum heart rate and maximum lactate they go absolutely together. I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the times at maximum efforts. And if you don't have a if you have a, syncre- a, a, a big decrease in, in maximum lactate. Compared to what you usually have, you're always also going to have a, a maximum, a decrease in maximum heart rate, which means that you're fatigued and uh, glycogen depleted. So that's what I like to see this parameter more than just to see, wow, maximum lactate is 15 or 10 or 12. I don't care much so much about it for endurance athletes, right? But uh, I care more about to see what's the status mm. of fatigue or of training. Yeah. So if we discuss the, how you uh, prescribe the training for athletes you coach, and perhaps we can take the perspective of uh, like a GC rider, somebody who's more on the like more similar to the majority of this audience, which uh, is uh, triathletes. We have a lot of cyclists and uh, runners and so on as well. But uh, let's uh, let's take a GC rider as an example uh, because it makes it more similar. So so what would a typical training like the, just the overarching principles of how you lay out the training? What would that be? Yeah, so my my vision, and it's about, I really like the kind of 80-20 polarized training approach, right? That if you look at historically the uh, the workload of, of, of the, the top athletes in the world uh, in endurance sports, and even not endurance sports, like, again, like rowers or swimmers, what 80% of the, of the, of the time, they're, they're more in the lower intensities, and about 20% is very high intensities. Uh, so to me, that's a principle that I've seen over and over that that's kind of what it works. Uh, and within the 80% of, of, of that lower intensity is not that it's just going and, and ride for fun, right? I, I, I break it down into different training zones. So zone one would be like, yeah, the, the uh, very low intensity recovery day, if you will. Zone two, that's kind of the sweet spot, which we have seen over the years that it increases performance dramatically if you do things right. Uh, you increase lactic cleanse capacity and fat oxidation, and it's because you're hitting or stimulating that energy system to the fullest, which is the oxidative energy system. And this is where I concentrate a lot working with athletes. Can, can, you, define, uh, can you define where that zone two is? Is it like around the, uh, what we might call the first lactate threshold or the first ventilatory threshold, or, or where is it? Yes, thanks for the question. So I, I, I match this both with uh, fat oxidation as well as with inflection of lactate. And normally, uh, almost always they coincide. 
So the zone two, it coincides with that first inflection of lactate from resting levels or from easy, easy intensity. And at the same time, it coincides with the maximum fat oxidation, mm. that fat mass. Yep. And uh, this is the metabolic event that is very important because that is suggesting that uh, the body is, uh, um, let's say, that, that oxidative capacity is working full on, right? When you go to zone three, you observe a big change in fat oxidation, where it's a big drop, and then there's like also a big increase in carbohydrate oxidation. And at the same time, therefore, you also see a, an inflection, an important inflection point in, in lactate or increase in lactate. So that is telling us there is like a, another metabolic event. And that tells you that that athlete is starting to uh, deploy or recruit those uh, glycolytic muscle fibers. And that's where you're, you're utilizing then more glucose than fat. And then this, uh, that's, that's kind of what I call the zone three which is a little bit of a transition between that zone two and that zone four, which is the zone four is, is, is what we would call that, the threshold because it's full-blown uh, glycolytic activity. Uh, you can sustain it for, for, for a bunch of uh, minutes. It depends on, the, on, on where you set it. But the whole thing of zone four is that what we typically see is that there's another inflection point in lactate uh, and then it's also like a sharp uh, decrease in, in fat oxidation. And in fact, there's no more fat oxidation usually at that intensity because all the ATP uh, is derived from a, a, a carbohydrate source. So that's where I, I, I set up those, those main zones, right? The zone two recovery, zone two, that's kind of the sweet spot for mitochondrial training, if you will, uh, and or oxidative training. Zone three is like where you start seeing more and more glycolysis uh, predominant over oxidation, mm -hmm. I mean, oxidative phosphorylation. And then you start seeing a zone four that is just fully glycolytic. And then zone five is another transition towards the zone six, which is the pure anaerobic. It's like a one minute maximum or so. But the zone five is, it's, it's kind of would be close to your VO2 max. Right? This is the maximum intensity that, it, that is it's coming from oxygen. And then zone six is pure anaerobic intensity where there's no oxygen need hmm. for energy purposes. Within the roughly 80% of low intensity, how do you distribute the training between zone two and zone one work? That's a very good question. So I, I try to have like a, at least one day a week. I mean, I'm sorry, at least... So two days a week recovery. Uh, one day a week, I like to have an, a, a completely off day, um, uh, which especially is important for runners or, or you know, it's, it's another day where you don't um, force, you know, like a more, you know, the weight bearing, you know, of running and you can uh, give one extra day to, to recover. Uh, and cyclists, the same thing, or, or runners, I mean, I mean, or swimmers, any, any athlete I, I work with, I highly recommend one day off completely, which again, was a concept that 15, 20 years ago, it was crazy to imagine an athlete having a complete day off. And now pretty much everybody at the highest level in the sport is doing it. Um, so I like that. And then I like another zone one day, like a recovery day, uh, easy recovery day. And, uh, and so with that, we have two days, but then I like to see, it depends on which phase of the season. I like to do three to four days at zone two. 
uh, if we're talking about like the preseason training, and uh, and once the season starts, I like to do two to three, um, and then you know zone four and five, I like to do that once a week. And uh, again, you know what we were talking about sprints. You know, I don't personally. This is my personal. You know, I, I don't do uh, sprints with my athletes. Like Bogatzer doesn't do sprint training, for example, uh, or, or or triathletes. You know, they don't tend to do sprint training. I don't, I, don't, I don't like to recommend that because it's difficult to fit in all these energy systems. Uh, and, and and again, it's something that if you're not a sprinter. I don't see much rationale to to work on your spring capacity when you really need to improve other energy systems. Mm. So that's why I kind of I distribute it um, depends on the phase of of the of the season. Yeah, can, can you describe a bit more how the high intensity training, uh, what it might look like in the in the preseason, and then maybe when we get into race season, how how it changes? Yeah, so. Um, the, the high intensity training in the preseason, I might do it one, yeah, once a week. Uh, specifically, uh, one day dedicated to do intervals, glycolytic intervals, and I, it depends on the sport, right? If we're talking about a rower, yeah, they have to be closer to about six minutes, right? Which is their their distance that we're going to be competing. Uh, when we're talking about um, uh, a cyclist, for example, you, you might want to do like about. 15 to 20 minutes uh, and, and later on you might do more right but I try to um, you know adjust it to kind of the, the intent the, the duration of, of, of the uh, effort you know I, I don't like much to do like one or three minutes glycolytic training or five minutes intervals for a cyclist because that you know they, they tend to, to need more time than that that doesn't mean that I get rid of them completely but I tend to adjust that glycolytic training to the intensity of the one they're going to be <clears throat> working at. Um, and, and, and that might be once a, a week at the beginning of the season, and maybe it's twice a week during during the or, or right before the season or during a specific, specific uh, macro cycle where they're preparing a, a given competition. Or what I do quite often too, I also uh, build some glycolytic training into an oxidative training session. So you, you you stimulate two energy systems within one session. Mm. But again, this is quite, uh, normally when you do the zone two training, it's quite demanding. It's not just riding or running easy. It's very demanding. Uh, and when you add high intensity training, obviously that's quite demanding. So it's very important to build uh, good recovery days. W- would you do the hard part if you build in the glycolytic training into an endurance day? Would you do that glycolytic training at the start or at the middle or at the end or maybe all three of them? How, how would you spread it out within the workout? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I try to 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 uh, um, simulate what happens in the competition. So uh, in this case, you know, normally, you know, that I would like to 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 do it towards the end of the of the training or in the middle but usually i don't i don't tend to do it at the beginning Mm. and and since your intervals uh for cyclists uh if we're talking about that are tend to be longer like lytic intervals uh does that mean that what is the intensity is it kind of like right around quote-unquote threshold just below it or just above it what uh, what is the intensity level if you specify that a bit yeah thank you so yeah, so uh, you know, in that first phase of the 
season, like the preseason, might do three zone three, zone four, then more zone four, and that's what I I, I usually get to um, stay there for a while, right? Zone four, and then I add more zone five or you know above the threshold. So, like uh, um, uh, at first it's a mixture below threshold and threshold, then it's more threshold, and then it's a mixture of threshold and above threshold. That's specifically for for a cyclist. And I try to do have, again, durations that are closer to what the competition does. So at the beginning, we might do 15 minutes or 10 minutes, and then we might do 20, and then we might do even 40, right? Or, or for example, if you're preparing for a time trial, like in the case of Pogacar, we knew that the, the time trial at the, at the Tour de France where, uh, where he, he did, where, you know, where he won, right? And he did a, a great race. He, he he trained it already. It's not that he showed up and oh boom, I did a great great time trial, right? He he practiced the time trial quite a bit, uh, both and uh, the um, recognition of the same parkours, you know, in France, but also we practiced it training. So we were talking about you know close to about fifty to an hour, you know, fifty minutes to an hour. So we've been doing those those trainings also specifically, very likely training super hard training but you know close to an hour long right um and 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 the same thing for the time trial when he won the slovenian championships this is about if i don't if i remember correctly it was about 40 minutes so that's what we do 40 minute intervals you know or, or intro a full-time trial right but it is about um try to simulate the 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 time of the competition that the one you're going to be competing at. Yeah, R- race specificity is important, uh, it sounds like. Yes. Right. And if we talk about amateur endurance athletes, so this uh, this overview that you've been describing now, do you think that it uh, works well for amateur athletes as well? Well, only that, of course, their volume is smaller, so it's scaled down. But but generally speaking, do you think that the same principles apply? Absolutely. In my opinion, the same principles apply. And as you said very well, the... Uh, the volume might be lower, but the same principles apply. And I've, I've seen this over and over and over in all kinds of athletes for 25 years that they apply beautifully. Um, and, and to that question too of the volume, there's the myth is out there that, uh, you know, that, oh, I only have an hour and a half to train or two hours to train. I can't do endurance because it requires five, six hours, right? I don't have that time. So in this an hour and a half or two, I'm just going to go full out and do interval training. And, and, but no, you know, in, 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 at an amateur level or recreational level, one and a half, two hours, they can really move the needle in terms of improving that mitochondrial function and the lactic clearance capacity, right? So I really think that uh, it's, uh, well, I didn't really think I, I have seen it over and over. It's, uh, you can extrapolate it perfectly mm. to, am- to amateur athletes. I don't think that you've coached triathlon specifically, but one interesting challenge with triathlon is that, of course, you had three different disciplines. So generally speaking, it tends to be that triathlon training programs do end up having more more frequent intense workouts because you try to fit in an intense swim and a bike and a run. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on on that? Like, how how would you solve that puzzle? Yeah. So yeah, I, I've been coaching triathletes, um, and it's a uh, I would say it's the most challenging form of coaching, right, that I've seen. Because as you said very well, you have three disciplines. Uh, you have to, to try to, it's a puzzle, as you said very well, right? And uh, um, in my opinion, again, the one thing that I do with, uh, with triathletes, I, I, I'm very uh, more radical when it comes to high intensity. I just, just kind of 
don't do that anymore. And what I mean high intensity is like sprints or very short intervals, right? Because th- that's an energy system that you're never going to use in the, in, in the competition. So it, again, as I said earlier, why training that? And why uh, specifically because you have so many other energy systems in different uh, modalities where you need to focus on. When I see athletes training, sprint training uh, every week on each of the modalities, uh, that's three sessions, right, of sprinting, where that athlete really needs to improve that glycolytic capacity or the, the especially the mitochondrial function. So uh, you, you don't have, I mean, you're subtracting sessions from what you really need, right? So I try to really focus more on that. On the other hand, what I've seen is that triathletes uh, are the population that are the most overtrained by far from what I see, because I see this all the time. And uh, that's where like uh, they have so many extra stressors that in my opinion, they're not needed. And again, the major stressor is the, uh, the high intensity training and the intervals that again, they're not going to use it in their competition. And uh, it's an extra physiological stress. So I, I try to focus more on the, uh, and the juice of their of the sport, right? Yeah, well, that, that's it's super interesting to hear you say say that. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely, re- really, really fascinating perspective. Uh, I've you've talked a lot about already about the mitochondrial function being best developed by the zone two training, and that's of course one important part of uh, the athlete's aerobic capacity or their VO two max, if you want mm-hmm. to call it that. Another part is the stroke volume. And I think what a lot of athletes and, and coaches try to get at with shorter intervals, like three-minute intervals, four-minute intervals, two-minute intervals, is to, to improve the stroke volume or the central adaptations of, uh, of, of VO2 max. What, what's your take on that? Can it still be improved with other means other than the really high-intensity intervals with perhaps longer and slightly less intense intervals that are more specific to the race? Or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so my, my, my opinion on the central adaptations versus the local adaptations is that the ones that rule uh, in an elite athlete or well-trained athlete uh, are the uh, local adaptations. And that's why the VO2 max, in my opinion, is not a big uh, component or a, a very important component. And this is what I've seen all the time for 25 years where you can see two athletes of, let's say, triathletes of high level, right, um, and one of them has an incredible high VO2 max, uh, but the other one is an okay VO2 max, but the other athlete is better. And when you come down to the local adaptations at the cellular level, looking, for example, again, at lactate clearance capacity or fat and carbohydrate rate, the lower VO2 max athlete might perfectly be much better. So that's what I, I started I start to, to see like, wow, VO2 max doesn't really predict performance. Uh, that's, and, and, and I'm not the only one seeing it. I, I'm, you know, there are many people doing a lot of metabolic testing. They see this all the time. So um, that's what I, I, I don't think that is so important. Um, and in fact, right now, uh, we're going to publish soon. We have finished all the, uh, all the, all the, all the, all the data analysis uh, looking at uh, the differences between VO2 and lactate, you two uh, at even uh, a given uh, um, power outputs as well as maximum VO two max, and there's little correlation between VO two max and lactate, which is again confirming what we have seen over the years that like you and I can have the same VO two max, but uh, uh, you know at, at 300 watts 
you might have uh, three millimoles of lactate and I might be at seven millimoles of lactate. So you're a much better athlete than I am, uh, but my VO2 max might be as good as yours. Mm. Uh, so th- that's where like the VO2 max doesn't discriminate. It's more of the local adaptation. So this is why I don't focus so much on the uh, VO2 max. That's my personal opinion. And again, we, we're going to uh, prove this concept in a, uh, in, in, a, in a study that hopefully we, we will be publishing next year. Yeah, well, you, you explained that really, really well. And it's a question that I've asked quite a lot recently on the podcast to different guests. What is more important, central or peripheral adaptations? And and I think this is uh, probably the the most uh, the, the most in-depth answer that I've gotten so far. So it's so really interesting. Um, when it comes to, to actually prescribing training, do, do you use power mostly or heart rate or RPE or combination? How, how do you do that? That's a very good question. So I, I really like the combination. Um, I, and in fact, I've been using before we had power output, we had heart rate, right? And, and, we, you know, and then the power meters came along and about, especially 10, 12 years ago, they became very popular. Uh, training by power and uh, working with elite athletes I, I i i kept observing that those ones only training by power they kept getting overtrained and fatigued and i started to also to um to to try to understand why right um uh and, and the the thing is that the, the ability of humans to produce energy depends on the ability of to convert uh, chemical energy into mechanical energy um, when you look at only the power output, you're just looking at the end product, which is the, the mechanical energy, and uh, you might miss uh, uh, different parameters there. For example, heart rate, you know, and I was told, like, you know, tw- 10 years ago, I was really trying to uh, uh, stop, you know, it's just training by power output, and a lot of people were telling me that I was old school. Oh, you're training heart rate, that's super old school. Well, heart rate is a true physiological parameter right? It's reflecting what happens in the body. And, uh, and, and power output is not a physiological parameter, it's that mechanical end product, you know, as a result of all the physiological parameters in place. So it's a great surrogate heart rate for what happens in the body. And that's why I, I have a study, I haven't published it, I presented at the ACSM conference uh, in 2009 or 2008, so long, like, yeah, 12 years ago, uh, showing that uh, what's are not what's and this is a myth that has been going on for years where like uh, people they would argue when only using power output that hey what's are what's that's it you know like sure but uh that doesn't mean that the same uh, you know metabolic um, processes to get to the same power output are the same and this is why i did the study looking at uh you know a group of athletes, tra- I mean, exercising at the same power output over time. And while the power output did not change, uh, and it was higher intensity too, it was like a zone four uh, or so, um, you know, the metabolic parameters increased dramatically. So we saw uh, a big increase in lactate, a big increase in heart rate, and a big increase in, in, in oxygen consumption. So the power didn't change, and sure, what's our what, Right. But metabolically speaking, there's a big change. And that's what I would see that maybe some people are prescribed power. Let's say you have to train at, I don't know, 200 watts for three hours. And uh, maybe the, the first hour, the, 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 the body is handling the, those 200 watts. 
but you know many people in an hour and a half then uh, you're at a whole different metabolic uh, situation so instead of going to zone two for example you might be going to zone three and by the end of the two and a half hours you might be already into the zone four um, and you don't see it if you just look at watts so you get home you say hey I did three, 200 watts, as my coach told me, but you pay a big price because you started zone two and you ended up at zone four. And this is why I would see, I would see a lot of people getting over training fatigue. So what I've been championed for all these years is to, to look at both. And this is something that uh, uh, Joe Friel uh, mentioned about the, the, the coupling, right? Where you want to see the heart rate and the power output are uh, completely you know, coupled together, right? Uh, and, and, and when you see a deviation of both, well, you, you can just then analyze it differently. But I think that, in my opinion, they should go together. Um, and again, you know, when, you, when you're training, and besides a cardiac drift, which if you are well hydrated, um, you know, you should not go 20 bits per minute. You know, that's why the zone two in heart rate, I give people like 10, you know, like within 10 bits per minute let's say 120 to 130 bits per minute, for example, right? But you're not going to go, the, the cardiac drift is not going to go from 120, that's it, that your prescribed training is not going to go to 140, 150, under normal conditions. But um, if you sleep, look at that at your same, at, at, let's say 200 power, 200 watts, you start at 120, and an hour and a half later, you're at 145, that's not cardiac drift, that's metabolic stress. And that's what okay. You might want to, you're not adapted there yet. So you might want to look at your heart rate and decrease your power output. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, I, it it does it does, and uh, it brings us back to the testing because obviously that's where you determine the heart rate and the powers that you prescribe. And one thing that I wanted to ask about is that. Uh, not everybody lives in Colorado uh, with access to your 10-minute testing protocol. Uh, what advice do you have for amateurs regarding how they should be testing and uh, using that to inform their training, uh, keep in mind that they are spread out all over the world? Yeah, so I would I, I, I see that more and more uh, uh, exercise physiology laboratories are, are, are being open or, or are offering this testing. I would check with your local university or maybe there's a sports medicine center or to be honest, more and more coaches, they can also do this testing, right? They might have a studio and they might have a, uh, you know, we, we, you, you don't need a, like a, um, a very expensive ergometer in the laboratory like we, we use, which is $20,000 ergometer uh, and another 25,000 of the metabolic card. But you know, the, the uh, smart tr- uh, trainers are very good now. They're overall, they're, quite close to what was in the laboratory so you can do this test uh and 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 again you don't need to look at metabolic card necessarily i think looking at lactate it's it's a very good uh, tool because it's a very good surrogate of what happens at the uh, cellular level but i really think and and this is my experience with athletes is that especially in europe not much here in the united states but especially in europe most of the major cities i would say in any country of the europe they have these facilities so i would i would encourage people to contact uh multiple sports medicine center universities exercise physiology labs because uh, i'm very sure they're going to find uh these uh, laboratories and already doing these protocols 
Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about, I do see a fair amount of labs that have short protocols, like three minute uh, steps in yeah. the incremental test and so on, maybe four minute tests. And uh, you're pretty lucky if you find five minute tests. Maybe in some cases you can just ask them to do a five minute test, but, but in some cases it might just be that uh, they try to cram through a lot of people in a short amount of time. So what, what is the minimum uh, step duration that you would recommend? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I would say at least five minutes. That's what I would like to, to see. I see definitely one minute is, in my modest opinion, is you're not going to get much data. Three minutes, phew, not much data. Uh, but five minutes, I think you were going to get good data. Um, you know, you pass that, you, you know, you need about three minutes to, when you change the step into a higher intensity, you need a good three minutes, you know, for to get used to that change physiologically metabolically uh so i would say three minutes is the minimum barely to to do this but i th- I think that four minutes might be tight but i think five minutes is a very good uh way to start and and uh yeah and, and in fact I, I i tend to do for example with uh, uh some of the runners i do uh many times i do five minute intervals um because what i see in running in five minutes you have a very good uh knowledge of other metabolism response within five minutes so i would say five minutes uh, works also mm. and if for whatever reason uh, testing is an option it might be uh, financial reasons or just living somewhere where there really isn't anything uh, what's your opinion on the next best choice are there field tests that you think are better than others or or, or even using things like the talk test that has been described in research, yeah. what what would you recommend if the if lab testing is not an option? That's a great question too, and I I think that the the, the talk test is, is it's it's a great test. You know, it's it's in my opinion is much more accurate than most VO two max tests, right? Um, uh, and the talk test is, is the same thing. It reflects a metabolic uh, event. You know, when when you can let's say run or ride. Uh, and you can talk like like you and I now, right? That means that you're not doing much effort. So that, that's your zone one right there, right? When you are having difficulty uh, talking but still can talk, you're probably the zone two and usually coincides. Uh, this is something that I've learned also, you know, testing a lot of people in the laboratory when they talk to you, right? And you know, and, and I kind of tend to tease them and, hey, talk to me. I like to see those feelings as well to confirm these things too. So that, that, that would be your zone two, difficulty talking to someone, but you can still talk. Your zone three is kind of, uh, you're struggling a lot. You know, you, you, you have to catch your breath you know, all the time. You cannot, you cannot have a normal conversation. Uh, you're struggling tremendously. And then your zone four is like, you cannot even talk anymore, right? So I think, honestly, and, and, and call me old school, right, if you, if you want to, but I think the talk test, it's, it's, it's quite, it could be quite accurate, yeah, no, I, I agree, and and to me, it's something in in those endurance workouts that is also like a secondary or or a joint primary metric, to be honest, for intensity control uh, alongside heart rate and pace or power, depending on which sport it is. So I do agree that it's yeah. very important. Uh, we're yeah. we're running a bit short on time, but I do have a couple more questions that we'll try to go. Through. Well, I have I have more time if you want. All to right, ask. yeah, just a, just a few more yeah. three questions that I'd like to get to. One is around fueling. Uh, you mentioned racing already, but what about training? Uh, what's your recommendations around fueling in training? And are there any points where you recommend uh, deliberately not fueling training? 
Yes, that is the whole thing of uh, trying to restrict, right? Um, so th there's a lot of hype about that, right? Um, and and I, I must say that this hype is not new, right? When I was 15 years old and I started riding my bike, that we're talking about over 30 years ago, more than th 34, <laughs> we were doing that also. We were restricting carbohydrates during training. I remember our, our, our cycling uh, sports director, uh, you know, knew about a French guy and, and back in the day, a French coach, I'm sorry, and back in the days, France was like a, the ultimate science of the sport. And that French coach was recommending athletes not to eat a lot of carbohydrates during, during training because this way we would uh, um, uh, train our bodies to use uh, fat, right? So these concepts, you know, they, 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 were, they were not new at all, right? But every 20, 30 years or so, these concepts are they're coming back, but they're rebranded somehow, right? And uh, but my, uh, my 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 experience is that this doesn't work overall, um, and 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 there were, there are a few reasons. Uh, first, because let's see a triathlete that they have to do a lot of fasting training or restricting training. That's a metabolic stress to start with, and they don't have much room for extra metabolic stressors in training. Um, Second, uh, there's no research whatsoever showing that if you decrease uh, carbohydrate uh, uh, oxidate, I mean carbohydrate uh, intake during during a training, you're going to increase mitochondrial function and burning more fat. There's no research. Uh, there's some research uh, that shows that you might increase some of the uh, the RNA uh, for uh, for the the genes encoding uh, the proteins uh, involved in mitochondrial function but not uh, in the proteins per se. And sometimes we see that uh, it, the fact that you have an increase in the RNA expression, uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to be producing the protein, you know, uh, to produce that mitochondria. So there's no research. And what I see all the time is that there's a lot of extra stressors. And, and the third thing I'd like to point out is that if you tell an athlete to do, okay, go today and do an hour and a half hours without, uh, uh, I mean, fasting, you know, without breakfast or anything like that, they will, they're going to push the envelope and they're going to do two or they're going to do three or they're going to do five. So in my opinion, it, it doesn't work. All right, perfect. And uh, the next question is, do you prescribe training at different cadences? And if you do, uh, when and why would you prescribe low and high cadences? That's a good question. And to be honest, I, 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 I would not know what to tell you. I, I don't know. I would not uh, know but what's the perfect cadence for an athlete? Um, I would not know. I, 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 I think that some exercise, some, some sessions you could use more like a, a, of like a bigger, harder gears, right. Um, to increase, uh, you know, power and, 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 and try to simulate what would you, you would do instead of weights, you could do the same session on the bike, but uh, recruiting specifically the, the, the muscle fibers that you're doing spe specifically to the sport. Um, that's what I do here and there. Uh, but again, I, I, but I'm not an expert at, um, at, at, at this, and I would not probably give you the best answers <laughs> for that. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. No problem. And uh, and for the final question that before we go into the rapid fire questions is, uh, how important do you consider an athlete's phenotype B or their, their muscle fiber distribution and so on for training and recovery? And uh, probably you don't 
take too many muscle biopsies of your athletes, but you probably have a like an an idea, an, an estimate based on the testing that you do and just their general profile and how they behave. So can you talk a little bit more about uh, phenotype and athlete yeah. profiling? So that's a great question. And I think that um, we, we used to think that the phenotype was key, right? If you have a more percentage of slow uh, twitch muscle fibers or fast twitch muscle fibers. But I think that the muscle's plasticity is unbelievable. And I think more than the distributions, the phenotype, which is going to be overall even, I mean, not, not, it's not, not going to be 15-50, right? But it's not going to be 90 and 10 either, right? So it's a little bit of equilibrium, but more than the distribution, in my opinion, is like the function. It's like, a, okay, you might have like a higher fast-twitch muscle fibers than slow-twitch muscle fibers, but the, which is a, an advantage for glycolytic efforts. But, um, but the function of the slow-twitch muscle fibers might be amazing because they're mitochondrial function. And therefore, that's where you're even at a higher advantage. Or you might have a, a higher proportion of, of uh, slow-twitch muscle fibers and the function is very good. Uh, and then your glycolytic capacity from the fast twitch muscle fibers uh, might not be as good now, but this is an area where you have to train more and make that capacity faster. So in my modest opinion, I think it's about more the function uh, than the phenotype and, and how the trainability. And again, the muscle plasticity, which is it's just incredible. The, the, the muscle plasticity at the cellular level, it's, uh, it's great. Um, it's great. And, 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 and also how those muscles work and, and, and how can it improve. Um, one thing that I forgot to mention specifically for triathlon is that uh, it's very typical to see athletes uh, who might think that their muscle fibers for running are not as good as for cycling, right? How many times we, we hear about uh, triathletes who, who they say, oh, the, the running part is that kills me. I'm not very good at running. You know, I'm very good cycling, but the, the running part is the one that kills me, right? And how many times we hear that all the time, right? Well, is that you know, and the athlete might think that oh, it's my specificity of the muscle fibers running that's not are not as good as as, as good as as a biking. Well, actually, what I've seen all the time is like what kills that athlete is the running, is the biking, not the running, because the biking that athlete is not very good and needs to improve a lot biking, not running. And I've seen this in, in quite athletes. So this is why it's important to make sure that it's more the, the way you stimulate and the way you train those those fibers more than the phenotype. Yeah. As an example, I was telling you, Timothy O'Donnell came to the lab once, you know, like a couple of years ago, three years ago. And after having some years that he was not doing very good, uh, he came and said, ah, oh, man, I'm, my running is not good. I, I think I'm, I'm getting killed running because uh, my performance decreased. Uh, I'm very good at biking. And and, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this example because he's a very experienced triathlete, right? So this is why we see this in, in the most experienced triathletes. And the fact it was the opposite. You know, his major weak point was the biking, not the running. And that's where we worked specifically on his biking and improve his uh, metabolic efficiency biking so that he can be fresher on the running. And yeah, that, that year in Kona, I don't know if it was third or second or fourth, I remember, I have a lot of memory for that. But yeah, he really improved a lot, his performance by training better the biking, where he thought it was the other way around, you know? So th these things happen at, at any kind of level, whether you're a recreational triathlete or, or the highest level in the sport. 
Did training better for Timothy O'Donnell include less high intensity and more CO2 training by any chance? Yes, that's what I recommend. Uh, I, I sat down with with with, with uh, him and his coach, right, and I, I highly recommended to make those adjustments. Right, all right. That's that's a really cool example. Now, finally, let's uh, finish with the rapid fire question. So these are just one sentence answers, so they're quick and short. The first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? So I, I really like uh, George Brooks. I mean George Brooks' uh, book. Of exercise physiology and bioenergetics it's a great book and another book that i really like a lot is the uh, exercise metabolism book which is was uh, uh edited by athlete mark hargraves and what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success well i mean within success i, I didn't know <laughs> i might be successful one thing but not another right but I think that uh, perseverance and uh, resilience and just kind of this is a marathon, long-term things. There's nothing in a short term, term is going to happen. It's about keep pushing it. And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? To me, I, I really look after, I mean, I've been always admiring uh, at a professional level, right? As a scientist, George Brooks, you know, someone who was, you know, being always 25, 30 years ahead of the rest and uh never gave up and uh he's been proving a lot of things and uh yeah we we most of the things that we know nowadays in exercise physiology and metabolism is because of his work all right perfect uh finally you're on twitter so people can follow you there i think that's probably the the best place so what's your twitter handle yeah it's dr inigo great and uh, yeah you post a lot of great things uh, including a lot of things about your research in uh, medicine and cancer uh, research and, and so on so so it's a highly recommended follow for those that are on, on twitter i would say but uh, yeah i just want to thank you so much inigo for taking the time i know you have been very busy lately so uh, so i really appreciate it and uh, and want to to thank you for coming on that triathlon show well, it's been a great pressure. Uh, um, Mikhail, Mikhail, I'm sorry. I, I uh, yeah, I pronounced Michael, actually. Michael, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. But yeah, thank you so much, uh, Michael. And uh, it's been a, an honor. And, and, and thank you so much for, for having me and, and in your podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Uh, I honestly... Uh, would say that this is one of the most interesting interviews i've done all year well all time really but uh, definitely one one of my favorites from 2020 uh, there were just really a lot of really fascinating things there to dig into as always you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and including some links to related papers that inigo has uh, been involved in not surprisingly, the topic of all of them are uh, related to the uh, cellular metabolism in uh, athletes of different levels, from world-class uh, world tour cyclists to less fit individuals. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out as usual. And next Monday, I interview coach Ian Armiger. And the topic for that will be swimming and swim training and performance. So stay tuned for that. Uh, it was a really fun discussion that I had with Ian. And lots of really good tips. And I'm sure that you will enjoy that too. Also, before we go, do remember to check out the training camp 
page on scientifictriathlon.com if you're interested in coming to Mallorca in April 2021 training with a bunch of uh, really really nice athletes of all abilities from uh, super fast to beginners and everybody is welcome and we will cater to everybody we have plenty of coaches in on the location to help with forming different bike groups and so on so uh, really there is uh, everybody is invited and we'll have a great time learn a lot about triathlon and improving their triathlon performance and just having a week of fun in a great location some of the best cycling in the world there on mallorca so check that out on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash camp and apply if you are interested and uh, do keep in mind that we have covid19 re- refund policies read them through but they are pretty extensive so uh, this is uh, a very very minimal risk uh, to to sign up for the camp Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy. And remember, today, if you're listening to this on Monday the 30th, uh, is Cyber Monday, and you can get 20% off your electrolyte supplements with the code TTSFRIDAY20. That is 20, friday 20 And if you order for more than 100, then you also get a free microfiber towel. And Roka is also also running running their sales on Roka.com. So check out if there's, if there's anything that you are in need of. If it's a wetsuit, then uh, I would highly recommend going to Roka. If it's a tri suit, same sort of thing. If it's eyewear, whether it's uh, sunglasses for sports performance or casual eyewear, Roka is the place to go. They just have a really wide range of products and they are all, all exceptional. If the product you're looking for is not on sale, on regular sale or on a low uh, discount, then you can get a 20% discount with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.